All right. Well, I'm, I'm waiting for a guy. I forgot to write that check. Okay. Um, I don't have a pen. Oh, wait. Eric's got these mugs of pens. So let me just. Joke, Eric? Oh, okay. Oh, this one's gotta be the one. Ah! <laughs> oh, it burns! It burns! Oh, 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 okay. Maybe not that. Maybe the third one won't be that bad. It can't be any worse than that. Oh, it actually burns! Oh, my eyebrows! Oh! <laughs> one will be okay. Ow, my ear! <laughs> oh, oh, maybe I could put a stud in there. No, but my ear is there's a hole! Oh, the humanity! Oh, no, 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 not again! God, Brian! Eric, what the... What? Why? What? Why? What? Why me? Why you? Why would you use my vintage 1950s espionage pens? Why would you do that? Who... Who keeps classic antique spy pens with regular pens? What's wrong with you? I have no words to describe how disappointed I am in you right now. Eric, I have no eyebrows. I'm pretty sure I'm blind. Can you please take me to the hospital? No! Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am now a blind man. I'm kidding. I am Brian Moriarty, and I am alive and well, as always. And I'm out of pens. Yes, nice you are out of pens. It took me a long time I, to, to gather all of them. The thing about Eric is that he's got all mechanical pens. None of these, like, Bic pens that you get from, like, like, he has all these nice mechanical pens. And the thing is, at age 10, I learned how to disassemble mechanical pens. It was my hobby. It was like most, like, military men learned how to disassemble and reassemble pens. Guns, I learned how to do that with pens. So I, I just went through and I removed the springs out of all of his mechanical pens just to mess with him. So he doesn't know I've done this yet, but one of these days he's going to need a critical pen and it just it is not going to work. I, I should have learned from the Russians. I should have yeah. learned from the Russians and just had pencils. But no. Exactly. Nope. No. no. Now, Eric does have an impressive collection of mechanical pencils as well. <laughs> <laughs> and the mayhem in continues. <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh, where did all the crap None of that go? is true, by the way. That no. was completely... That was amazing. That was totally off the top of your head, too. That was that was something. Yeah, but I did actually learn how to disassemble mechanical pens. That that part actually is true. Oh, that that's in your childhood? Yeah. Yeah. Why did you admit to the saddest part of that story? <laughs> well, I wanted to say that there was root in some sense of reality, but I, I was a nerd, as we both have shamelessly admitted to, so I have no other explanation other than other than that, so... Very good. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm yeah? good. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm got a nice little improv warm up from the the opening of that. Uh, that's good. You should take that on tour with you. That's that's excellent. <laughs> yes, Brian and the exploding pens. <laughs> That'll it'll be my new vaudeville act for even though vaudeville's been dead for seventy years. I told you your agony is very convincing. Yes. Well, unfortunately, no one can see my expression. They can only hear the shriek, shrieking of my voice. Right. And. I don't know how wearing that is on the earlobes, but, you know. Anyway. Enough about that. Uh, we were talking about last episode's uh, topic, which was uh, spy, well, really, es espionage, the history of yeah, espionage. exactly. Yes, and so we talked about a lot of the ancient Middle Age and uh, Renaissance roots for what would be modern spycraft, essentially. Um, and we kind of left it around the turn of the 19th century, right? We kind of left it right when we were introduced to the Industrial Revolution, because while we've set up this really great basis and foundation for espionage, the nature of it really changed, and it changed with technology. It did, indeed, yeah. And I think, for me, the thing that is the most intriguing about spycraft, right? Yes, of course, there's the whole secret identity aspect to it, but it's really, it's the gadgets, right? It's yeah. the it's the actual tools of the trade, the spy craft, as it were, that I find the most intriguing. So I'd actually like to go through the tools of the trade, at what points in history they came in handy, right? 
and really to kind of talk about like some of the the tools that we think are modern enhancements really have ancient roots to them hmm. right so that's kind of my approach to this evening's topic so okay. i have a question then that relates yes. to this how do you make a silencer for a crossbow that's a good question honest answer because i think the answer is you don't put a head on it you just make it a bolt oh yeah i was actually trying to be funny yeah and realized that i stumbled into a serious question yeah because i'm a little thrown off right now yeah because <laughs> that was the thing about crossbows is they were meant to be short range because they were bolts they weren't really arrows necessarily well you, were, you could mount it with an arrow you could mount it with an arrow but the the short range ones that were actually like pistols essentially mm-hmm were were bolts yeah there was actually even a bullet a bullet crossbow that was developed uh in the i want to say 15th century oh wow yeah oh that's kind of cool yeah was it any quieter though because i I would imagine it's the release of the tension on the pull string that is creating the majority of the sound because the 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 passage of the bolt or arrow through the air while it cuts the air is not going to produce that much noise i mean it was essentially a slingshot and the crossbow put together that's how it was designed to be so maybe actually kind of quiet yeah oh all right yeah i was i was just trying Um, to make it funny you can't talk about spycraft without really talking about munitions right and armaments and you have tools that trade for gathering intelligence, but you also have to talk about some of the weaponry that was developed uh, at the same time. So and, where, do you, where do you want to start? Uh, I think I want to... there's so much to talk about. Sure. I want to talk about the ancient Chinese, actually, if I could. I love starting in China. Let's go there. Yeah, I do too, because we, ha- we don't do enough Asian history on our podcast. Let's talk about it. So the thing I found the most fascinating was wiretapping. Ancient Chinese wiretapping. Wiretapping. Yes. Ancient wiretapping. Yes. Now, you, I used to, you, I used you do to... realize that Samuel Morse was, you know, not Chinese. Yes, about and not 2000, and about 2000 right? years later yeah, than yeah, what yeah. we're talking about. No, yes, completely understood. But I mean wiretapping in a metaphorical sense, right? Hmm, okay. You, yes, you. there were no phones in ancient China. So how do you wiretap? But that doesn't mean you couldn't do eavesdropping. Right, and I'm not just talking about having a means of being able to keep a, a a plant, not an actual plant, but as in a human being, you know, in covert means to be listening. Yes, you have that too. But, but essentially, we're talking about bugging, right? Bugging of rooms for purposes of eavesdropping goes back millennia. So you're telling me they had some sort of, um, you know cup to the wall kind of system or what was it it wasn't a cup it was a jar yes Ah. but yes effectively yes that whole scientific principle that the cup focuses the sound right and then again i'm trying to be funny but you're correcting me with serious history yes i am i'm i'm (laughs) i i'm beating you down with logic this is good i like (laughs) right now yeah um not that you need to beat down i'm just saying but uh (laughs) but no essentially but you actually bring up that good point the glass to the wall principle as actually what they would use. So what they would do mm. is they would have a jar up against the wall. Uh, but the other end of it, they would have a piece of leather uh, over, right, to kind of focus the sound. Okay. And on the other side of the wall, they would have someone putting their their, their ear to the, the piece of leather, right? And these were basically essentially built into uh, either the wall or the ground. Um, so they actually may have chambers underneath the ground for people to to, to overhear what was going on in the room. But to make it more interesting, I found, is to prevent any uh, dissemination of who is asking for the information, the people who would be listening would be, would be blind. It's really kind of like that, that was their, like, their, their uh, way of protecting, of almost encrypting the data is to, to make sure the people who were gathering it uh-huh. didn't know who, actually couldn't physically know who had asked for the information. Well, I imagine that would be one component of it, but... Uh... It's very commonly said that if an individual loses one of their senses, thank for you. Example, that's like that's sight. the next piece, right? They would also be able to make much more distinct, right? Uh, no, no uh, measurements of sound, right? Especially because of their if ears. they had been blind their entire life, sure. That that sense would have definitely been heightened. Yeah. So uh, very smart. Yeah. Very very smart. Yeah, and of course the other thing I think is awesome is that the you have some of the earliest examples of invisible ink being used in ancient China as well. Is that where it comes from? Uh, well, I think this is actually an example of cross-cultural parallel development. Mm. I think these the, that uh, when the need to conceal writing uh, has occurred, uh, people will find clever ways of being able to do it, right? We talked about the old-fashioned, like as a kid, I learned lemon juice. Right. right? 
was the way that you could create a chemical reaction, right? To hide writing. Uh, the Egyptians, not the Egyptians, the Chinese uh, used water mixed with alum that they would write it on. And of course, after you write it, it would disappear. And then after it was soaked in water, it would reactivate the alum and make it dis- reappear. I'm sorry, did somebody say Alan? No, Alan. Alum. A-L-U-M. I'm so sorry. I heard lemon juice in my name, and obviously I thought of uh, what I normally bathe myself in. Uh, I find it to be very... Um, you bathe in lemon juice? Well, I find it to be very relaxing the way it uh, it burns. It centers me. That's just creepy. Um, All right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm back. I'm back. I'm sorry. Alan, Alan, you know, he's making appearances Alan, all over the place. Alan, the intruding hipster ghost. Yeah, yes. yeah. He, he was on Nerds on Film for a while, and I haven't heard him haunt in a while, but... Uh, he did haunt Nerds on History a couple weeks ago. He did. I he's will been say. kind of targeting us lately. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I blame you entirely. Sorry. Go go, go, go ahead. Um, so, yeah. I just I th- And it's interesting that, you're, like you were saying, Invisible Ink has actually shown up in different parts of the world, and, that, and it has had different um, methods used to it over time, right? And it's been a recycled uh, method for encrypting messages uh, throughout the years. I mean, you see it happening during the Revolutionary War in America. Even though I can't cite any specific examples, I'm almost certain it was used in the Middle Ages and through Europe Hmm. uh, to transmit messages as well. It just, it seems like such a a simple tool to use that, and uh, such an effective tool that makes sense. Uh, why it would you know be I, I have to I have to mention this uh, of course the listeners know I used to work at the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum and we had this fun idea one summer where we created these signs that went up in our galleries for kids to use to to look at them sure but they were seemingly invisible and what it is we took yellow paper and then we printed it on with yellow ink and we gave them these little uh, blue LED lights and when they shone the light over it the the slight difference in the, the pigment between the, the ink and the paper allowed the words to kind of magically shine up and it, it reveal little secret facts about ancient Egypt. Oh, yeah. It's well, a pretty cool yeah, technique Well, you can well use. not related to espionage in any way. I just, I thought of it because you were mentioning the, the invisible sure. ink. But when, when I also think about the transcribing of messages, I also think about the different means we've used to encode messages throughout uh, the centuries. And one I love was one that uh, was also a major plot point in the book, The Da Vinci Code, uh, The Cryptex. Cryptex was an actual device that was used. It's, it's essentially the first combination lock for, for a message, right? The idea was that you got a scroll of some kind, particularly a papyrus, uh, that had a vial of vinegar in the middle of it, and that uh, the around these... Uh, ends to the tube, you would have, you know, letters, letter wheels uh, basically fixed to it. There were essentially locks and pins, right? So if you got the wrong combination of um, letters, uh, you would basically break the, the glass inside of the oh, the middle. wow. And the vinegar would melt the document. That's And that's naked. a real thing. This is not one of the other made-up garbage that's in the Da Vinci no. Code. No, here's the thing about the Da Vinci Code. The... The, what he postulates, based off the information, is fictitious, but he makes a lot of real historical references to it, and the cryptex is actually one of them. So what, what time period are we talking? So we're talking, we're talking just in the tail end of the Middle Ages. I think as okay. we're getting toward the Renaissance, that becomes uh, commonly is. And really, what you're talking about is you're trying to find ways to, again, to encrypt data, right? Uh, so that the, if someone were to intercept the the message they wouldn't be able to understand what what it means but in this case it's not so much encryption is it i mean the the code to unlock the message is encrypted in a sense yeah this is a more literal way of encrypting the document right like because it literally if you get the code wrong the document gets destroyed destroyed right which is really actually a more of a fail safe than i would call an encryption i guess yeah well i mean the encryption is that there's a code right on the outside of it right you can't but you can't crack the code you just have to know the code know the code right you know um, the the device was designed in a way it's pretty hard to pick the lock on on that device. Um, but the other thing I find really cool is that as you go along this method of encryption, uh, I find there's also you get the idea of a cipher disk, which was more popular. Uh, I'm, uh, there's one I'm looking at here that dates back to the Civil War, which is pretty cool. And basically, what you've got is you've got two. Um, two rings that create the alphabet, right? There's the inner one and the outer one. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice that they are 
basically the disk sets the level of encryption, right? So you you look at the you basically you line the outer letter with the inner letter, and you basically figure out what each letter is supposed to mean, right? It's essentially the the, the ancient version, or the in this case the middle age version of a Dakota ring. Right. I was going to say, did these happen to come in uh, uh, med- medieval uh, boxes of cereal? Right, exactly. I wish, but they didn't know what cereal was at that point. Well, they had cereal. Well, they had cereal, but they just... But they had a literal cereal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they... Like, there were no Cocoa Puffs in the Middle Ages. <laughs> Sorry, Count folks. Chocula had not been invented yet. No, no. They, o- only not. in Romania. <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking... <laughs> yes, indeed. This chocolate tastes like blood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway... Well, that better not be the episode title. That's just <laughs> that's too far. Which is like, like, what? Um, so they use the example like M could be G and P could be J example. Um, but the other thing is that you to make things even more complicated. Aside from having the cipher disk, you would also write might even write in a in a third language that neither neither party understood. <laughs> understood. Well, sure. I mean, we talked about that. Um previously i'm trying to remember when we talked about it maybe we didn't maybe we talked about unnerds on film but when we were talking about the wind talkers right sure so you know during the second world war and also during the first world war when uh, the united states army used native american speakers to send messages uh that were essentially encoded in that sense yeah and really where this becomes even more uh, handy right as we get to the more advanced you no know, advancements in the telegraph for example is uh, the the enigma machine oh the enigma machine right yeah. uh, a seminal piece of spycraft during world war ii and it so it was thankfully figured out and and in doing so uh really helped turn the tide of the war against indeed. the germans yes yeah so the idea was basically it was a typewriter that essentially acted as a cipher disk right it would it, but it would do a double layer of encryption uh, on the uh on the messaging and so thankfully Someone was able to obtain the device and crack the code. Right. Um, Recovered from a captured U-boat. In one particular indeed. case, they had dials that were captured uh, elsewhere. Yeah, there's, there's a movie that dramatizes this, the movie U571. Oh, so inaccurate. I understand. That's why I said dramatizes it. I know, but I don't even want it mentioned. Fine. Strike it from this podcast. I don't want it. Such a hard ass sometimes. I don't like that movie. It was horrible. Horrible. Well, fine. Let's move on, shall we? We shall. Yes. So, I mean, I find that one was pretty cool. I mean, we're now getting kind of into the the more um, modern age when we get into, again, like you said, the post-industrial uh, technology. But that's uh, where all the fun stuff is, right? That is really where all the, we get to, like, the James Bond cool stuff. I mean, it's worth mentioning, of course, in the ancient world, it's pretty clever that they came up with, like you said, invisible ink, how they had, you know, concealed compartments uh in and not just clothing but also you know containers and and boxes and sure that pistols nature. that could fit in the palm of your hand yeah all sorts of pretty cool stuff but um, once you get into the james bond-esque era right the the, the 20th century yeah uh, late 19th century early 20th century that's when you get some pretty cool stuff you get some really interesting things like uh the one i also find interesting is the bulgarian umbrella i have heard of this and this is a real thing this is a real thing this is not just for the movies. This is the real deal. Uh, well, yes. So it was actually used to kill particularly Bulgarian dissident Georgi Markov in 1978. But the idea is that it's essentially, it is on the outside an umbrella, but the spine of the umbrella um, is a syringe, right? And it's used, and it basically, if you poke somebody with the tip of the umbrella, you're injecting a toxin right. uh, into them. And this was used to basically, you can use it to kill somebody by injecting a lethal uh, and, and usually not instantly, though. Many times they, they injected them with something that would cause them to get ill uh, a few hours later. Sure. So they could literally just poke them. Oh, what was that? Oh, never mind. Yeah. Go about their daily business and the the assassin can just yeah. disappear. And it doesn't have to be a simple injection. It could be something that were by simple skin contact. It could get into the bloodstream as well. I feel, I think this one was specifically used for injection purposes. Um, it was uh, more specifically, it was a ricin pellet. So that would that did the deed. So, yeah, you've got some pretty clandestine means of killing people. But you also have clandestine methods of obtaining information. The one I find really cool is uh, what the East Germans had, which is called the micro dot camera. And this thing is super tiny. It literally fits in your hand. You could palm it and never notice it. But what it can do is it can take photos and think of it like zooming out. It could shrink them so 
small that they an entire image looked like just a simple dot. Wow. So, so the idea is that if someone were to obtain this camera, they wouldn't have any idea what it was. It would just look like a dot, right? But yet the Germans had a chemical process that would remagnify the data that would turn that one dot back into basically like a page. Think of it like a picture for a whole document, for example. So they think of it like super early age uh, file compression, right? You could pretty much use that dot to chemically hide lots and lots of data, these series huh. of dots. Yeah. That is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And this goes, this is pre-computers. This is before even a microprocessor was used for pr transmitting information. That's pretty wild. Isn't it pretty wild? And there's, of course, also the coat camera, which I love as well. That's that definitely like a Mission Impossible one where the idea is the trigger is held in your hand, but one of the buttons on like a long coat uh, is in fact the lens for snapping images. Uh, so you can use that as a means of... Uh, of you know taking pictures and of course now you can fit video cameras in almost anything well i mean photography changed the game because we're, we're talking about uh what oh well, God, 18, well, 1830s was is when you had some of the first you know uh, first experiments happening with first it. experimental well, really, glass you can plate argue that cameras. you can argue that photography has been in experimentation since the 7th to 17th century or even earlier than that i mean pinhole cameras and camera obscuras have been around for a long time well some people even argue that vermeer was actually a photographer. Even though he was a painter, he was oh. using a photographic device to just recapture. Oh. Ma uh, many people speculate these days that the great masters, uh, many of them may have actually used camera obscuras to to create the finest details right. uh, in their paintings. And the way you can tell, that particularly with the one about Vermeer, I find interesting, is the way that light, the way he captures light uh, is not a way that the human eye captures light. It's the way that a lens refracting it captures it. So exactly. therefore he was looking at the way the lens was capturing it and then mm -hmm. repainting it. So that's that's a big clue. But anyway, when you're right, when you once you get the idea of being able to make film photography, which is really, you know, Eastman, which we're talking late nineteenth century, yeah, then you have the ability to start making cameras smaller and smaller and smaller. And that is where you get weird things like the pigeon camera. <laughs> the pigeon camera, wild. It was literally a floating camera that <laughs> on the top is meant to look like a pigeon. I'm gonna show you this picture to Eric. That is awesome. And also kind of terrifying because it looks like a like a like a taxidermied <laughs> pigeon, pretty much. That's probably what it is. Yeah, it probably and is a real pigeon. It well, it's essentially it's a spy satellite, right? This is what they would use um, for aerial photography. Now, I don't know if they would actually would strap them to live pigeons because that could be interesting. <laughs> Somehow, I doubt it. I meant well, pigeons roost often, or not. Well, I mean, right? if you're going to use carrier pigeons for from transmitting messages, I guess you could use pigeons to do intel for you as well. <laughs> According to to this, yes, this article, uh, yes, they would actually strap the camera to the pigeon, and they would they would fly information over an area, and they would it would just the camera was preset to automatically take pictures as it would go. So hey, why not? Yeah, you basically pigeons, these pigeons are incredibly strong. Yeah, and so these are essentially like your you know your early versions of drones, <laughs> pretty much, right? To gather intelligence, um, pretty interesting. You know, uh, of course, it also reminds me of. You know, early advances in, in aviation. So balloons, you know, during the First World War, we, we just, you know, I know we just covered the First World War not that long ago, but balloons were used for aerial reconnaissance uh, before planes ever were. Sure. Uh, and, you know, they were very effective at what they did. And they also used them in the Second World War for submarine spotting as well. But, uh, you know, strap a camera onto one of those and you can get some pretty detailed aerial photos uh, that you can use for, uh, you know, pretty effective reconnaissance. Indeed. So when you also have in the early 60s, the transmitter, right? The ability to make a transmitter super small, the transistor, I should say. Right. That's what the uh, the impetus for modern electronics, right? That that I would that argued the, the invention of the transistor alone, I think sparked the microprocessor, right? Because the microprocessor was meant to be a series of transistors. Correct, yes. On one chip. All right here in beautiful Silicon Valley, but yes. Yes. Well, not all right here. Well, okay, the, essentially the idea of a transistor is, right, it's well, something that doesn't just receive a signal, but it can also send a signal right. out, right? So the fact that they, they, they were able to do this as far as the early 60s or late 50s uh, was a big deal because you can now hide small transmitters of information pretty much anywhere. Sure. Uh, including the famous heel in the shoe one. This was an actual, you know, people make the joke from like, get smart that Maxwell Smart had a phone in his shoe. Uh -huh, yeah. That's not too far from the truth. <laughs> He wouldn't, it wouldn't be a, a full, like, you know, telephone, but yes, there were spies. Right. It didn't have a speaker, but it had a receiver. They had a receiver on the other end, exactly, and it would be in the heel uh, 
of the shoe that you could go out and you could transmit a message uh, from. It doesn't have to be audio. It could either be, you know, it could also be, I guess, telegraphed as well. Pretty neat. Uh, Just want to make sure you have somebody who's got good posture and doesn't drag their feet. Or exactly. Get a lot of feedback. Sure, sure. And I mean, if you were to look at these shoes, they would look like these just fine, well-made dress yeah, look shoes. Yeah, like dress shoes. Yeah, exactly. There's also, of course, this is probably the most James Bond, James Bond girl-esque, right? Which is the idea of a lipstick pistol. Oh, yes. That and pens, too. Uh, keep in sure. mind, just like in our cold open. Right. Yeah, that actually is. There were pen pistols. Yeah. Meant to shoot very small bullets. <laughs> but at close range and just the right spot could be deadly effective. Could be deadly, exactly. I mean, you can also use it, I'm sure, from some sort of like toxin dart if you want. And this one I'm looking at here, if you didn't know from long range, it, you wouldn't know it was a pistol. But it's essentially a four and a half millimeter single shot. And it's only got one bullet in the chamber. Yeah. And right, it probably wouldn't go more than five or six feet. But if you're a good shot, most. that's all you need. Right, right. Uh, this one in particular would be... Uh, <laughs> It's ironically, of course, for use for the kiss of death, right? Um, but uh, it would be used with um, cyanide. So, so even if you didn't kill the person, you would, with the shot, they would die soon enough. Hmm. So, hmm. yeah, again, very, very uh, crude, but yet very effective. Well, can I share one with you? Sure. Uh, I want to talk about tiger poop. Tiger poop, good, because I want to talk about dog do when you're done. Okay, good. We'll, we'll get on to a, uh, this, we'll make it part of a category. All right. Funny. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Scat. Gory. Yeah. 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 Anyway, mm. Vietnam. During the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam, uh, Vietnam War, they actually left fake tiger poop in certain areas. And inside them were small seismometers, and they were actually used to track the uh, enemy truck movements. And, you know, it's tiger poop. It's common. There's a lot of tigers in Vietnam, and they're in the jungle, and that's where a lot of these, you know, uh, troop movements were happening. So it makes sense that uh, you would disguise it, not maybe under a rock that could easily get kicked over, or, you know... Right. Hide it as a you hide it as one that no one would want to go near. <laughs> yeah, <right>? exactly. <laughs> you hide it as a as a pile of crap. Um, this actually is frankly familiar because the thing I'm looking at here describes it also in use in Vietnam. So I guess it's really two different forms of the same thing. Really? But yeah. Essentially, but mine was is was a transmitter that was basically hidden to look like uh, not not just a seismometer. So I guess they would use both. Hmm. The things you can hide in, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, the magical world of feces. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, I will admit, that's a very ingenious it is. thing to do. Absolutely it is. And it's the kind of thing where it's not so out of place, right? I mean, you, you come across wild animals, and therefore you come across their scat. So, you know, it, it's the, also the kind of thing that you just generally try to step around and ignore. We've all stepped in animal poop at some point or another, folks. Yeah. It's not fun. You don't want to repeat that mistake. But when you hear a crunch that. and then a whistling sound from feedback, then you, you know, then you you're like, on a special one. Yeah, exactly. You hear audio feedback. You're like, what? <laughs> Did I just like step on like I a... I swear to God, that turd was speaking English. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Weird stuff. Well, why don't we also talk about the tree stump bug while we're at it? Okay. Yeah. It's interesting is it actually used solar power in a continuously wooded area. This was used in by the Soviets in the in the early seventies. Really? Yeah, and the idea is that this thing, which would be pretty much obscured in a tree in what looked like a, a cut off tree trunk, right? Yeah. Would be able to intercept radio communications. That is cool. It yeah. looks like something you keep in your front yard when you want to hide the key. This looks house. like, honestly, if you look at this thing I'm looking at, it looks like something from an episode of Doctor Who in, like, the early episodes. It does kind of. Like, you landed on a planet and you thought it was some sort of, you know, pre-industrial civilization right. only to open up a tree and have some sort of, you know, technology inside. Right. Or, or almost, I would say this is, like, from a like a lost episode of Lost in Space. You that know? is pretty cool. Yeah. So, pretty wild stuff. And, you know, there is way more than what we're just talking about out there. I remember, <laughs> I remember when I got uh, it was a little kid. I got a little iSpy kit, right? And it gives you like a your, your name and your alias and a couple different cool spy gadgets. But like the idea of putting mirrors uh, in your your glasses so you could see what was going on behind you, essentially, right? Without actually any form of conspicuous uh, device that would that would give away that you were looking behind your back, essentially. 
Um, and when you were talking about the living spy last ep- episode, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, it, it evokes, again, you want, those are the kind of people who you wanted to have as unassuming of a look as possible, right? And that's really kind of where like the fedora and trench coat comes from. I mean, if you really think about it, it's a way that's simple. It, it obscures the body, but it's also a common enough garment yeah. that would make you blend into a crowd of people, especially at times when the trench coats, if you're living in Europe, you know, living in London where there's un- unpredictable weather, trench coat is just a commonplace. Oh, absolutely. In right? the 1930s, 1940s, sure. you could disappear into a train station and not be found. Exactly. You could be gone in seconds. Sure. And and well, I would say well into the ni- up until the 1980s, fedoras were, were still worn uh, semi-regularly on the streets, too. So, In fact, I wear fedoras semi-regularly as well. Indeed. Um, but we're talking about real fedoras here. The, whoa. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> whoa. That was highly insulting. That was a joke. It was a joke. I know. You know how sensitive I am about hats. I'm sorry. It's okay. All right. I'll forgive you. But I'm. But seriously. Yeah, so I we're know. talking I about know. the. Um, what, what I mean by that is the wide brim fedoras. Yes. I don't. I don't. I have Eric a couple. A very, I have a couple this, of wide brim fedoras. Yes, he does. I have a lovely Panama. Yes, one of my favorite hats. Yes, when and when you do, he always says, "Welcome to Jurassic Park." Whenever, <laughs> whenever he wears it. Yes. Oh, I'm just recently, of course, we yeah, just rest lost in peace, him. Richard yeah. Attenborough. I know. Um, but ser- quite seriously, like that evokes the common spy, uh, you know, image, right? When you look at those two things, but they were just pretty much born out of necessity, right? Yeah, and so. There you have it. Like, and that's probably the most simplest form of spycraft that there is. I don't know. I think there might be one simpler. Go ahead. Because we're talking about tools of the trade, and I think you've missed a pretty important one. Go ahead. The knife. If you are a spy, you also have to be pretty well trained in uh, close range combat. So the knife can be an extremely effective way of uh, subduing an enemy. Oh, right. It's, it's perfectly quiet. It is generally flat, and you can have them crafted to be extremely flat, so they can literally or retractable be, for that matter. Or retractable, right? yes, uh, or just taped to your arm or thigh or, or inside of a uh, the lining of your jacket, and you can quickly and easily remove it and dispatch your your target very very effect- effectively. Yeah. Um, if you're doing it in a secluded area, it doesn't matter if anyone finds the body with a pool of blood around it, as long as they find it later and you're out of the way. So. Right. Uh, we think back to another very famous case of uh, spying and assassination, one that just happens to have happened on the Ides of March. You were thinking about Julius Caesar, of Exactly. Yeah. And where did they conceal their blades? Their togas. But in their togas, exactly. And this was actually a case of a failed intelligence uh, operation because they had the counterintelligence uh, Caesar's men knew he was going to be assassinated. And they tried to get to him as quickly as possible to tell him it was going to happen, but they didn't make it there in time. Yeah. Uh, until Brutus and all of his buddies uh, got a chance to be stabby stabby. And to be fair, yeah, it wasn't just one, right? It was in a whole cadre of senators oh, yes. who went and... I mean, it was pretty brutal, you gotta admit. Absolutely. But it goes to prove, and yeah. we've talked about this also when we talked about uh, ninjutsu and, and right. uh, the, the, the warcraft of the samurai, that the knife is just such a... Versatile weapon. Versatile, deadly, effective, and quiet weapon. Yeah. And I will say that even though Julius Caesar was no saint at all, that's a pretty brutal way to die, I must say. Um, And also, we can't forget silenced firearms, too. Sure, yeah. And the whole science behind silencers, I find, is really, really interesting. Because the idea is, as it is, when you're firing a gun, you're basically making a a bullet spin in the barrel, right? Right. Uh, And when... So really what you're trying to do is you're trying to spin the sound out of out of the gun or out of the bullet. So you by extending the barrel, you um you essentially make the sound less and less noticeable, right? To when it's almost this this you can't and you can never eliminate the sound completely, but you get essentially a very low sound that you may you may not even be able to to, to pick out if there was other background and ambient noise blocking it. Yeah, and you know, it was invented back in, in 1902 is when the first patent for the first silencer comes out uh, by Hiram Percy Maxim. Uh, and, you know, it, it is used by a lot of folks up you know, after that point, but it is used very effectively by uh, British special operations agents 
as they were uh, fighting against uh, Nazis. So as they were going behind enemy lines or they're performing these sure. covert mer- missions, uh, they were able to use the silencer highly effectively uh, to to dispatch their uh, their targets. Sure, definitely. I mean, it goes without saying that the, the sniper rifle, uh, I mean, it has its obvious use in assassinations uh, as well. And, you know, you it allows you to fire a long-range shot without uh, a, a long nose for where the, the bullet came from. And if you could conceal yourself in the right spot, you could fire a shot, take someone out, and then be gone before anyone even noticed that it was what had happened. Sure. Pretty much. Also, keep in mind that, you know, dynamite, we talked about this very briefly in the previous episode, but dynamite really changed the way that sabotage was being performed. Well, plastic explosives in general, Yeah, uh, I mean, going beyond just TNT. Sure, any high-velocity explosive, you know, generally yeah. they're they're compact, they're small, uh, they're easy to set off, and you got to be careful because they're also easy to set off while you're walking around with them. Sure. Uh, especially those very early sticks of, of a dynamite were, were rather unstable. And, um, but it was easy to conceal. You sure. Know, you, you could walk into a factory uh, with five or six of these sticks in your pockets and nobody would really notice until after you had left and the whole place was up in flames. Sure. Uh, so completely reinvented uh, just how how deadly and how effective uh, these these operatives could be. Yeah. Now, the thing I want to know for sure, and I don't have any research here to back this up, but the spy car, right? That's got to be the coolest idea <laughs> for spy tech. Seriously, right? Because you've got, you've got the... The James Bond, you know, stuff. You've got like the the oil slick and the or the, the, the flamethrower out of the, the flame back thrower, that does or, nothing, or or the tacks that could flatten. But there's some things that are, that are practical. Like if you don't throw on a tax that could flatten tires, that seems to slow down your enemy, right? It also slows down traffic in general, <laughs> because who, who's to say that you, you got to be real sure the person behind you is following you and not just some like ass <laughs> Sunday driver. <laughs> um, <laughs> Whoops. Exactly. I'm swearing a lot this episode. I I, I apologize. You, you got to calm down there, buddy. Yeah, you got to calm down there. We can, we we've only got two more bleeps that we're allowed to use. <laughs> right, but also like kind of I like the idea of the smoke screen. The, I gotta say the one that was most interesting from the James Bond movies was the uh, was it the the Aston Martin that was also the submarine <laughs> as well. You know which one I'm talking about? The Lotus. Sprite. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. The most probably the most infamous of the James Bond vehicles, right? Next to the BMW, because why would an English spy have a Bavarian vehicle? Because that, <laughs> that makes sense. Irony. Yes, it's, indeed. It's irony. Yeah. Well, there's a particularly interesting one I'll mention from the Second World War. Uh, and this comes back again to explosives. But when you want to hide an explosive and you want to get it to somewhere where it can do a lot of damage, it can be difficult to just kind of walk up and drop it off, right? Sometimes you have to be really clever and creative with how you get it. So they hit it in dog poop. Close. (laughs) Uh, Rats. Rat skins. Interesting. The British actually put uh, sticks of explosives into rat skins, and they would leave them, you know, their agents would leave them in German ships, like, uh, you know, so they were essentially near the boiler, essentially near the coal. And people weren't thinking of it. They think, oh, there's a dead rat. Well, that's fine. Let's just throw it in the boiler. Who cares? And then kaboom. So you essentially would take a rat pelt. You would skin a, a rat. Uh-huh. Yep. Head and everything, and then just stuff an explosive in there. And that's... And you just throw it along with the coal, you wow. know, and, and people don't think anything of it. They want to get rid of the rat anyhow. A lot of times they find dead rats around the ship. Right. And dead rats is what over, caused the Black Plague, right? So you don't want to... Uh, or I should say not dead rats. Rats is what are known spreaders of disease. So it makes sense. You want to get rid of that vermin as quickly as you can. Clever. Very clever. Uh, there was a, a very famous attempted assassination in 1954 uh, where uh, the Russians had sent uh, one of their operatives into Germany with a dart gun that was disguised as a cigarette case. Oh, yes. The cigarette case pistol of and course the, the darts would shoot uh like you were talking about earlier the cyanide tipped darts uh that would kill just almost instantly it's just so cool i mean not that they were killing people i mean that's not that cool but what i'm talking about is just the, the ingenuity that goes into crafting these you know little weapons and just everyday things right. uh i mean like we were talking about with with bullets, you could put them just about anywhere, right? You could make a small gun with a single shot and hide it in just about anything. Sure, uh, they did it with uh, tobacco pipes. Uh, they did it with you know work gloves, where it was kind of concealed on the on the inside of the glove sure. there. Um, 
all sorts of really just very clever yeah. ways of, of hiding a, uh, a single shot bullet. It's also crazy to think the ends people would go to to hide armor too, right? I mean, there were times like you were talking about up and was it up until World War One, people wear chainmail under underneath yeah. certain clothes just because like chainmail might actually be the best tool to block a variety of things that would be coming at you. But um, even something as simple as from the Middle Ages, there was something called the Iron Hat. The Iron Hat. The Iron Hat, and it, it is exactly how it sounds. It is a brimmed cast iron hat that was eventually covered in cloth to look like a regular hat, and it was meant. I, I'm not making this up. It was essentially, right. it was meant to, to be a concealed helmet. And no, <laughs> and, and no, in the off chance that some assassin had a crossbow that was going to try to hit you in the head with the with a bolt and take you out, it would deflect that. Essentially, now this thing would have been incredibly heavy, so I'm not sure how practical it was. But the fact that someone put that much effort into wanting to protect somebody and hide it, that I think that kind of speaks to, even though uh, it, they may not have necessarily been a spy, the whole nature of it, I think, it lends to spy craft. Right, this idea of concealed protection or concealed weaponry. Oh, absolutely, and and I think that you know when we talk a lot about poisons. Um, we're, we're talking about creating situations where there's a lot of questioning around uh, the death of somebody. Sure. Uh, because, you know, we talked about effectively killing somebody with a knife or with a gun, and those are pretty obvious uh, what they what killed the person. But sometimes that, that critical amount of time where people are questioning what happened uh, is really important for that person to be able to get away or just to cause further confusion to be able to go and do some other mayhem. Sure. And that's when poisons kind of come into play. And we've talked a little bit about those, but apparently um, the CIA developed a a gun that could induce heart attacks using shellfish poison or huh. like, like an allergic reaction to shellfish. Essentially, they can so like, induce cardiac using, arrest. Basically, using like anaphylaxis as a means of killing somebody. Crazy. Yeah, and it's a real thing. And and you know, back in the 1970s when. They were really trying to uh, curb some of this activity. Uh, they brought this out during uh, an actual Senate hearing uh, and brought it brought it to light that you know, and and that has spurred so many conspiracy theories ever since then. Whenever somebody in world power now has a heart attack, you know, people instantly jump to the CIA and say it's the CIA right. who had to. Kill well, I mean, also right, there's the belief that the CIA developed LSD as well. As a means of torture. Well, they didn't actually. LSD was accidentally discovered. Yes, um, but but developed for use after it was discovered. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that it was used by the CIA as a means of torture to give, again, for the sake of gathering intelligence, used to uh, to put the person in such a crazy state, such a heightened state that they might be able to give away the information you were looking for. Oh, and, and what I was referencing before, I just found the precise date for it in my notes, was uh, the 1975 Senate hearing on rogue activities within the CIA. Uh, and there is actual video of them showing off the, the weapon in a very public fashion, which is kind of unusual with everything that we're talking about, right? We're talking about uh, espionage and, and keeping things on the, the down low. And yet, um, now that a lot of what is known to have happened during the Cold War is coming to light, uh, we're being very much more public about it. We're being a lot more critical about the way that we're using espionage. Uh, you know, the CIA has taken a lot of flack over the years. Sure. And um, we could do a whole episode on just the secret agencies themselves, uh, and not just in the United States, but from around the world. And there's actually a whole book that's been devoted to the history of the CIA. That, oh, there's uh, several, actually, yeah, that are that out there. are written by people who worked in the CIA. So, of course, there's probably some stuff that they're not saying. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, like there's... Um, you know, there's a lot of things they did that were borderline unethical as well. But for and the beyond so, borderline, just straight up despicable. <laughs> yeah, but were used for the again for the protection of the greater good for the or what they claimed was to prevent a major war. That was from the claim. Out. That yes. was the claim. We can't necessarily substantiate the claim. That's not what this episode is for. Yeah. Um, but um, it's pretty nuts, though, just to think of all the the things that were developed out there. Yeah, and now with the age of. I mean, with the smartphone and what these guys are capable of, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, we're seeing the tail end of that now. I'm wondering, like, how long have the Pentagon or you know, military, has, how long have they been able to use that type of technology for, for communication? I was just talking to um, a coworker 
or a coworker, a castmate who his job is he he writes code for cell phone towers. And uh, it's crazy to think that we're now using lasers to line up and relay signals between towers. Right. And those lasers go at about two gigabits per second, uh, which is, that's tremendously fast. And yet that is civilian grade communications. What is the military using? Uh, and what speeds oh, sure. are they transmitting information, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, th- there's a lot that uh, only comes out a lot later. Uh, and, you know, the internet is a prime example of that, of, of something that was developed, um, you know, initially by, by the U.S. government and by the military. For intelligence. For intelligence purposes, and then... And then exactly. Uh, well, I'm sure, sure Wi-Fi is also something that's been re- reverse-engineered as well for purposes of communication, right? Even in science, uh, in, in the science of astronomy, we're talking about adaptive optics. You know, this is the technique we talked about in our History of the Telescope episode where you can essentially clear up the light coming from a star that's distorted through our atmosphere by using a powerful laser. Yeah. But that technology was, you know, being worked on and developed by the military uh, long before it ever became uh, a scientific instrument. And in fact, some even speculate that using adaptive optics and the right focus of a laser, that's how we'll be able to do interplanetary internet should we actually get to the point where we need to... Interplanetary internet? Not exactly. Interplanetary Morse code? Maybe. Well, you never know. You never know. I mean, I guess Mm, if you... I know this one. (laughs) You know this one for sure? Pretty sure. Well, I mean, if light... If laser travels at the speed of light and you're going... You you got the right target... but how are you transferring data along the laser? That's the point. Well, that's... I guess maybe I didn't make that clear before but like that's how they're using relay that's how they're relaying signal between cell phone towers is they're using the laser to transmit the signal well okay i guess so but but that's a much shorter distance sure you're gonna well, have you can also use a series of, of you can use a series of satellites i suppose yeah to the, relay the signal the visible light will will continue on though and that's what you want to use to try to signal aliens sure yes anyway we're yes. getting off on one of them lovely tangents yes yeah, one of those the more sci-fi kind of stuff now yes and surely enough the aliens will be spying on us I don't know. I'm just trying. I'm basically. I'm just now breeding conspiracy theories. You are. Stop it. You're gonna. You're gonna cause more good than or more mayhem than good. Blame it on the Muppets. I don't know. Damn. Muppets. Let's just. Let's, I don't know why. I don't know why. Why would I blame such an innocent and entertaining uh, entity as the Muppets? But because you're a horrible person, Brian. Well, you know, maybe it was. It was Muppet Most Wanted. I think that did it. The whole concept. <laughs> I am Kermit. You know, the, the whole imposter that looks just like. You know, sounds like our cold open we did uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> last week. A little, little bit, a little bit. Uh, so, case in point, I, I'm just very curious to see how spy tech is going to evolve uh, forward because now, with pretty much with smartphones, you've got you, I mean, you've got a computer in the palm of your hands now, a, a very powerful computer in the palm of your hands. I'm like wondering, like, oh, so yeah. who is hacking the phones to do the things that we don't get to see off of it? That's going to be pretty cool well, another 10 or 15 years when we do a, a follow-up episode uh we'll just have to talk about it then i guess i suppose so uh until then i'm going to encourage any of our listeners that are out on the east coast particularly in the langley virginia area to go and give a visit to the cia museum because they have a really fantastic collection of these uh, beautiful vintage espionage gear and gadgets. In fact, some three, very cool stuff. Yeah, yeah over three thousand five hundred items that are held and available for you to uh, to have a look at. And they have a lot of different exhibits that go through. And so it's something that um, I definitely recommend going to see if you can. I would love to go see it. I have uh, cousins who live out there, so maybe I can sure go and uh, check it out myself. Yeah, indeed. You can also not too far away from there head over to Washington D.C. And uh, you can check out the International Spy Museum, which goes uh, a little bit wider in depth. It's not just about the CIA. Uh, and it's pretty cool. Like, there's a funny exhibit for kids to actually go and be enlisted as spies, as operatives in this agency. To And they give you a mission and they give you your whole cover story. And then uh, they capture him at the end and they put him on trial for treason. And then... Yeah. In fact, I think they're even working on the, the, ex- the exhibit for waterboarding as well. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. Come here, little Jimmy. You're going to try something else for us. Yeah. You want to know what drowning feels like? <laughs> but don't worry. You won't actually drown. Yeah. Sign this permission slip. For- <laughs> Please. <laughs> 
So, you know, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of things that we covered today, but I'm sure there's a lot of things that we didn't get to. Uh, and if you have a particular favorite gadget that you want to share with us, uh, why don't you head over to our website, nerdonomy.com, click on our listener feedback button, and uh, drop us a line. Let us know your favorite, maybe something that we missed. Because I guarantee that we didn't get cover it all. Uh, and also, please, uh, hit us up on our social media, too, through Facebook and Twitter, at Nerdonomy, right? And join our community. We now have over a 1,000 followers on the Facebook. Yay! Yay! They love us. They really, really love us. They, yes. Well, I'd like to think they do. They they are in like with us. They like us. Yes. No, they, they, they outright love us. Do they? I've got marriage proposals. Oh. Yeah. But it doesn't count because she's, 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 she's my wife. Yeah. Well, and there you we're go. We're actually already married. So there so. you go. Yeah. Well, that was very misleading, Eric. Um, <laughs> what you can also do is, uh, if you're going to be at nerdonomy.com, you can help us out by giving us a little bit of a donation, too. Uh, you can click on the donate button, and we'll take anything above a dollar. You can also, if you want to, if you like to continue to support to support us through PayPal, you can pledge a monthly amount as well. And any amount you want, 2 bucks a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, however you much you feel like you want to do. Because let's face it, folks, within the first two minutes of this episode, Brian has already burned through and wasted uh, some of my very valuable mm-hmm. artifacts from history and, and those lovely spy pens. At the rate that I'm going, I am ruining Eric's life with all the artifacts I'm destroying of his. So you we need to fill that bill quite a bit. mustard gas. You destroyed the biological uh, agents that I, I was I violated your, uh, your, your World War I-style German that's, that's right. helmet. That will never be clean. Ever. Thanks, Brian. Yes. I even tried the flesh-eating n- n- uh, Nutella on it. Nope. No, no go. No, no go. So upset. That's kind of even more disturbing. But um, <laughs> yes, indeed. You can also, if you'd like something in return, you can help us out by supporting our audible.com partnership by either clicking on the link for Audible on our uh, desktop version of our site, and we'll get a small commission if you sign up for a free trial or a full membership. Uh, or you can also, if you're on a mobile device and you can't see that, you can go to audibletrial.com slash nerdonomy and support us through the same means. And that is for the U.S. I know we've had a couple of requests about the U.K. We currently do not have a U.K. version of the Audible store. Our apologies for that. We should look into that. We should look into that. Yeah, I don't know if we could get the money in, in like, pounds translated, though. Yeah, we still have to get that worked out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, folks, it is that time. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye bye. Later. Okay. I'm starting to regain my sight. Mm hmm. Yes. Good. Now, what's this thing over here? No, 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 no! Oh!